I'm Taffer. I'm Bailey. Welcome to Yeah, a show where we talk about young adult lit and what it can teach us at any age. This is our book club and you're invited. Yeah! Yeah. After a lot of enthusiastic feedback from our first installation of the Harry Potter read-through, we are coming back at you this week with our second installation, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets is the second book in the Harry Potter series. It is much maligned. Uh, and I think unfairly so. I will have plenty to say about it. It sees Harry entering his second year at Hogwarts, where there is very much afoot, in fact, one could even say a feat. There are so many things afoot. Bailey, how was your read-through? I'm sorry, I need to <laughs> regain my ability to speak without laughing. Uh, that was very good. Um, I I did not know that this one was particularly maligned, I don't think. And I also am going to have opinions about that. Because I, I enjoyed this book. It was... I, I had a good... I had, for the most part, a good time. Yeah, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed my rereading of this installment. I think on recent rereads of the series, I have sometimes skipped over the first few because I'm like, ugh, they're not as good as the later ones. They're and they're much they're much simpler in a lot of ways. But I I think it holds up for the most part. I similarly have not reread this one in a while because, like a lot of Harry Potter readers, I think for me the series kind of starts at book four. Mm-hmm. Um and and you know. There is a significant shift in tone around Goblet of Fire. Harry's getting older, things are getting darker. But I was struck on this reread, and I think I was thinking of it as much maligned because somebody actually uh, like said to me recently, I can't remember who it was, and I'm very sorry about that. Um, you know, that one has a bad rep, people say. It's like the worst of the series. And I was really struck reading it that that it's really important in the building of the story. So many things are established in Chamber of Secrets. So many things are established. Um, We get the beginning of Tom Riddle slash Voldemort's backstory, which is really a driving narrative in the final four books. We get a a much better look at who Voldemort's supporters are um, through the character of Lucius Malfoy, who I really want to spend time talking about because I think he is one of the really best characters in the series. Um, And I'm going to stand by that. People don't really talk about Lucius Malfoy that much, but the Malfoys are, are really fascinating characters. We get an idea of how the wizarding world works a little bit more with the introduction of house elves. And we get the the first seeds of the Ginny Harry romance too. So there's just there's a lot established here. Uh the the obviously the first seeds of the Marauders also. I mean there's just so much set up. And it's really a a gripping plot also. Like I find much more than Sorcerer's Stone. This one kind of keeps me going and trying to see what happens next. Yeah, it's definitely more, I think, like, well-plotted and kind of a more a more compelling arc, maybe. Um, and yeah, no, I think everything that you said is true. There's so much groundwork that happens in this book that's really important. Um, and I also was struck by something that you were saying, and I think that this is interesting, and that we'll maybe even look at this more when we get to Goblet of Fire, say. But I wonder if that, if that sort of... Um, that shift that you were talking about that happens at Goblet of Fire is um, if we can think of, say, the first one, the first two to three books in this series as being children's books and the latter four books being young adult novels and sort of perhaps seeing seeing that like genre distinction between them what do you think about that i think there's certainly a shift from from children's or middle grade uh to young adult um and that's really fascinating because uh harry potter is really kind of prevalent as a young adult series that's how people think of it but it didn't start as that it started as a children's book um and that is going to be a really interesting thread to trace Mm -hmm. and we don't get a lot of other series 
that sort of change genre like that in the middle of a series, which I think is really interesting. And also especially interesting that we are reading these right after we did our Anne read-through, because I would say that those books also do that, which is very interesting. Well, it's also about genres being established, right? I mean, we talk a lot about sort of when did YA begin? And while YA definitely existed pre-Harry Potter, um, you know, Judy Bloom existed, and uh, I think Rick Riordan was was happening, right? Or Maybe I'm not 100 sure. That? But um, uh, the fantasy series you love was definitely already a thing. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot her name. She's so prominent. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yeah, Tamara Pierce. Yeah. yeah, she was definitely already writing. Um, sorry, I thought you said the name of a fantasy series, like Eula or something. And I was like, I don't know about this, but apparently. But you were you were referencing Tamara Pierce, who is my one true love. Exactly, yes. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, so to say that Harry Potter started YA, as I have heard some people uh, posit, is just outrageous. Um, <laughs> but I do think that right around the Harry Potter books, right around 2000, we started to see a real pick up in pace of production of young adult novels. Um, and Harry Potter did a lot for the publicization of young adult literature. You know, the book, the movies were, were box office hits and I think did a lot for the evolution of the young adult movie franchise, which is kind of dead now, honestly. That was a boom. And then it died with Divergent. I think Divergent killed it. Then you do still get it in a slightly different, I mean, we're seeing the Tall of the Boys You've Loved Before being a serialized movie franchise on Netflix, different, of course, than being a box office one, but... That's true. I think that's something I'm really de- uh, keeping my eye on, because I know that there is a boom in YA content in movies and TV now, but streaming, especially now, especially that people are, are not going to movies at all anymore... Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're just going to see a total shift in movie production in general, or or um, we're going to see that shift sped up because mm-hmm. there was already a shift away from sort of the box office opening weekend uh, that everything hinges on towards towards online streaming models. But I digress. This is something I'm very interested in and could talk about for a while. I am really interested in kind of what's happening with YA on streaming services because there is the To All the Boys I've Loved Before series. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a couple of others. Uh, Dumplin' was there that we reviewed. Yep. Um, and that's just cool to keep an eye on. Yeah, and let it snow this Christmas. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, my point being, with... Certainly the Anne series, I feel like it changed genre because the genre didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. It was books about young people, right? Yes. And uh, Harry Potter, kind of to the same extent, I feel like there wasn't the kind of canon there saying, well, is this a middle grade fantasy series or is this a young adult fantasy series or is this an adult fantasy series? It was just kind of like, this is something nobody has really done before. Um, and mm-hmm. there's something about that innovation that allows for that kind of gender fuckery, if you will. Yeah. I'm super gender fuckery? G- genre fuckery, genre. sorry. I that was a Freudian slip. I'm super... I wish that the Harry Potter books did more gender fuckery. I wish. I mean, let's talk about polyjuice potion, right? Oh, true. Like, there's definitely... It's available, for sure. Um... But yeah, it's really it's really interesting that yeah that maybe the the fact that it was just the, these were happening as the genre was sort of being solidified that allowed that fluidity. Because I'm thinking, okay, so now I'm going to reference Tamara Pierce again. Because in my head, I was thinking, oh, is it partially because you know, is it because Harry changes age over the series that we start being a middle grade book when he is approximately middle grade age? And then we become young adult novels as he is a young adult. Um, But there are definitely authors who have a protagonist change ages while keeping the genre consistent. For example, Tamara Pierce's Protector of the Small Quartet is definitively a middle grade quartet. um, But the protagonist is 20 by the end of it. Anyways, I will probably stop digressing into Tamara Pierce at this point. I started it. You did. I really can't be blamed. 
so yeah, um, I do. I, I when I said genre fuckery, I actually paused because, um, well, first of all, because I accident, I actually said gender fuckery by accident. But uh, I'm super aware, having just said the word fuck like 17 times in a row, that we now have because schools are closed, we have more teen listeners than we used to. We used mm. to be very much a show. This is kind of for the information of the audience because we've had this conversation. Um, but when we started this show, we were very much a show for adults like ourselves who enjoy YA literature um, and have always kind of had it in our heads. I mean, our sort of touchstone has been we won't use words that weren't that aren't in the books per episode. Mm-hmm. And fuck is not in the Harry Potter books. Um, <laughs> so I broke that rule. But uh, now that we're now that teenagers are on break we know that there are more teenagers listening to this who are interested and we're kind of trying to navigate how to serve both of our audiences um and you know not alienate anybody so that was why I had a little crisis around the word fuck which I've now said 27 times um (laughs) we're not gonna stop saying fuck but we are kind of thinking actively about how we can better uh serve the audience that we have at this time yeah i think we did manage to keep the Anne episodes relatively clean but um also to like teen listeners thank you so much for listening i know it's really really very hard to impress a teenager um mm-hmm. and i i hold your input and, and criticism in the highest tier um so thank you so much for taking time when you could be playing i don't know Fortnite. is that what teenagers do or you know more realistically because you're listening to this podcast reading something and mm-hmm. instead listening to some kind of old people ramble about books we love <laughs> thank you Yes, thank you. We're very, very grateful. It's wonderful to have you. You're going to do great. <laughs> All right, so Harry Potter. So Chamber of Secrets. Um, yeah, I think we just get so much more like richness of the Hogwarts world as well in this book. Um, like I love the sort of like glimpse into the personal lives of the ghosts that we get here. Um, in general, we maybe like start to see the first like some of the first inklings of like other characters having rich internal lives like more so than we we got in the first one we get a lot more Dumbledore also we do mm-hmm. Dumbledore was just sort of like a shadowy figure in the first book whereas he's much more present now I want to circle back to the ghost uh mention you made because mm-hmm. I constantly forget about this ghost subplot in this book I like I don't know how many times I've read it and Nearly Headless Nick's birthday party or death day party is always such a delightful surprise for me. It's such a <laughs> it's such a funny little side note in the plot that doesn't really have to be there. You know, it sets action up, but it's not necessary. Um, but it adds so much. And um, Nearly Headless Nick being so devastated and left out and maligned and mocked in the afterlife is just it's so poignant it's so cruel it's just like oh you had your life and then in the process of your gruesome terrible death um something happened that will have you be mocked for all of eternity and you can't sit with the cool kids for all of eternity it's it's so poignant. It's so poignant. It hurts, you know? <laughs> I'm, like, getting tears in my eyes. Poor sweet nearly headless Nick. Or, no, I'm going to respect him. Poor sweet Sir Nicholas de Mimsy Porpington. Poor, poor sweet Sir Nicholas. I mean, and you know Sir Nicholas de Mimsy Porpington was not really necessarily used to being left out, probably presumably being being a knight yeah like i mean i'm not saying the nobility can't be shitty to their own but Mm -hmm. you know that's got to be kind of jarring there's got to be some fanfic about his personal life before he died right yeah i want to know what he did to get him to like get himself beheaded poorly beheaded poorly beheaded Beheaded. at that partially decapitated podmore 
properly yeah. decapitated. Oh, no, that's somebody else. I love when he calls him Sir Properly Decapitated Podmore. That's my favorite thing. <laughs> it's such a good line. Mm-hmm. That's one of the one of the dudes of the Headless Hunt. Also, okay, now um, Sir Nicholas is bringing up all sorts of questions that I have about when muggle and wizarding society became disentangled from each other because... I usually call him nearly headless Nick, and so I forget that he was a knight. Um, and so him being a knight implies that he was like part of the Muggle nobility, presumably, but also also a wizard. So, well, we've got how- Merlin, right? Like Merlin exists in both worlds. That's true. So presumably in the medieval era, right? And canonically in this universe, Merlin exists in both worlds. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Merlin is on one of the the car- cards. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. And there's the Order of Merlin. I'm sure I could Google and find out when the Statute of Secrecy came into effect. In fact, mm. I believe the Statute of Secrecy is actually, like, I think that's something Hermione says at some point in the books. Yeah, I think it's definitely canonically referenced in the books at some point by and, Hermione. And I think it's in the 1400s, which doesn't make sense for Sir Nicholas because the, the clothes he wears, the ruff, the breeches, those are definitely like 1600s. Yeah, those are Elizabethan, right? Yeah, yeah, he's in Elizabethan clothes. So I'm going to spin off and say that he was knighted by Queen Elizabeth I. Okay. What do do we think? Perhaps that he was was a a, a a knight in the within the the Muggle system, and the reason was he was beheaded was because he was accused of witchcraft. Oh, now that's possible, and you know the witch burnings are also referenced. Mm-hmm. Well, no, because could Muggles behead a wizard? Because it's also like pointed out at some point in the text that a lot of the witch burnings were ineffective for real witches because they would perform a flame freezing charm. But I wonder like what if a if a wizard if a wizard is stripped of their wand um and uh and we're going to assume that they're just sort of like a moderate level moderate skilled wizard stripped of their wand mm-hmm. would they have any recourse against being beheaded? Yeah. Probably not. That's a good point. The Statute of Secrecy was instituted in 1689 and put fully into effect in 1692. Okay. To hide the existence of witches and wizards from the Muggles who persecuted them. So he would have been... I think that's that's a good uh, assumption that, that Sir Nicholas was beheaded as part of the persecution of witches and wizards before the International Statute of Secrecy. I'm sure this is there's some probably some Pottermore crap about this but like yeah but we don't care about we don't care about that that's not it's not in the books it's not real what we have to say is just as real as whatever stuff is on Pottermore agreed 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 we yeah we're not interested in the author's headcanons as being more um relevant than our own headcanons let's call the author properly decapitated Pottermore so, yes, there's just, there's a great wealth of information. And and I mean, thinking of this from like an authorial and publication standpoint, it makes a lot of sense to me that um, the author wrote the first book kind of as a standalone children's book, whatever, um, and then gets picked up by the publisher, right? And it blows up. And then the author can put a whole lot more of the universe into the second book. Mm-hmm. In a way, the second book is really the first of the series, right? But it's... So good. So let's take some time and really dig in to what we love. What else we love in addition to ghosts. Yeah, like Mudblood gets introduced in this book too. Mm -hmm. We also were introduced to the idea of squibs in this book. Mm -hmm. So we we start getting the, we start getting, I think this is really the book where we start getting introduced to the complexity of wizarding muggle relations and the place of muggles and muggle-borns and squibs in the wizarding world. Yeah, we get the sense. So the first book is all, there's magic, you're a wizard, Harry. And the second book is, guess what? We still live in a society. We also learn about the existence of Azkaban in this book. Yeah. And Death Eaters more fully. So can we talk about Lucius Malfoy for a minute? 
Yes, let's. I'm very interested in this and also have thoughts. So, um, not just because Lucius Malfoy in the movie is, is played by maybe the only casting choice I agree with in the movie series, Jason Michael Isaacs, who is also one of the few people who looks way better in a long platinum wig than without. Um, I love his casting, and so he really put this face on him. Um I really like the storyline of the Malfoys. I feel sympathetic to them despite myself because in many ways, I mean, their story is so relevant to our times. The Malfoys follow Voldemort because they really, really, really believe that being pure-blooded wizards makes them better than other wizards. And being wizards at all makes them better than muggles. And that kind of superiority is so important to them the Malfoys are filthy rich and as the story goes on we kind of see the tension among the Death Eaters between the Malfoys who kind of have the double whammy of being pure-blooded and high class um, and some of the other Death Eaters who might be pure-blooded or lower class and we see that with accents and things going forward Um, but I think Lucius Malfoy is really hot you thought this was going somewhere. You thought this was going somewhere deep. I'm analyzing it. It wasn't going anywhere deep. It was going to also that person's hot. I have somewhere deep to go with it, if you'd like. But if you'd like to talk about how he's hot a little bit more, we can absolutely do that. I just, I got distracted. There's something... Lucius Malfoy costumed in the movies is extremely femme. He has a lot of big floppy bows and ebony canes and like he's really like he's really dramatic and he's costumed very queer and I like that. He's very kind of Adam's family. It's hot but then he's also the Harry Potter version of a white supremacist. Mm -hmm. So I kind of have to reconcile that. I mean he has a slave. (sighs) Yeah, and I mean, so Witch Please has some really interesting analysis throughout the films on Lucius Malfoy's costuming and sort of being part of this larger trope of, like, visual queer coding of villains in the Harry Potter world, which is, like, a little bit gross. Um, I listened to an episode on that. That I'm. This is dinging a bell. This is where I got this idea. It's so good. Everybody should listen to Witch Please's analysis of queer coding through costuming in the movies. It is so good. Really, really fantastic. Um, just like Witch Please in general is so great. But it's, yeah, the movie. I mean, the movie episodes in general are a delight. But yeah, they have really good, some really good thoughts on how queer coding is used. Um, to signify evil uh, in, in the series in general and especially in the movies. But yeah, I think one of the things that makes the Malfoys so so compelling and interesting as villains is because they are the epitome of sort of banal, complacent evil. Um, like you have someone like Bellatrix who is just sort of like, she's cartoon fantasy evil. She is, yeah, she, she is over the top, um, sort of entirely um, motivated by malice and cruelty and all of that. Whereas the Malfoys are very much, they are rich and they are complacent and they have power and they are willing to do anything both to other people and in terms of like mental gymnastics in order to maintain their power. Like, they like where they are in the world and want to justify that they belong there and so will embrace all kinds of hateful ideology in order to do that. But very much, and I think that this even comes to, I think there's a a line about this in a later novel, but they are... So they align themselves with power in that, um, like, again, if you sort of put Lucius Malfoy against Bellatrix, Bellatrix's firmest loyalty is to Voldemort himself. Um, And I'm sure in a later book we will get into that. Whereas Lucius Malfoy's strongest alignment, I very much think, is towards however he can maintain his power. I don't think he... If he didn't think that sticking with Voldemort was going to continue to give him power, he would be out of there. 
And so I think the sort of the realisticness of the Malfoys is very interesting and very compelling. Um, thank you for that. You reminded me where I was going before I got distracted by Jason Michael Isaacs, who is hot. Um, the the complexity of the Malfoys is that their allegiance is really their allegiance is to themselves. I'm gonna go a step further and say their allegiance isn't murky. Their allegiance is to themselves, both as the ancient house of nobility and maintaining their bloodline, um, and as a family. And we do actually see Narcissa and Lucius as loving parents to Draco, um, mm-hmm. which is one of the complications. There we don't get that kind of straightforward storyline of oh Draco's mean because his parents are mean no Dra- I mean Draco's mean because his parents are mean but they're not mean to him Draco's mean because his parents have have imbued him with the same sense of entitlement they possess but they care very much about him and that's really present in all of their interactions with him which will become more and more and more apparent as we go through the series um, and that's really where the sympathy comes in for me I think if they were portrayed as simply a power-hungry family, that would be one thing, but they're portrayed as a power-hungry family who also love each other a lot. And that's that's very interesting and very compelling to me. It makes them much more rounded out, compelling characters. And Narcissa kind of gets her moment to shine later in the series as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really interesting. They are... The Malfoys are fascinating. Yeah, I'm interested for us to sort of follow them throughout the books. So speaking um, of... Oh, go. Well, I was I was gonna sort of bring us on another tangent, um, tangentially related to how attracted you are to Jason Isaacs, Michael Jason Isaacs, whatever his name is, um, and and your extreme distaste for the rest of the castings. Um, so I was talking to a friend and listener of our show, Rachel, this week, um, and she had a very interesting theory about all of the adults being older. Um, which, like, she also thinks that we are approximately correct about them just wanting big names, but I really, I really liked what she said, which was that this could also sort of be an example of Harry's, like, um, being an unreliable narrator in that, like, as a child, all adults seem way older to you than they actually are. Um, anyways, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I I don't think that was actually present in the casting. I don't think it was that like nuanced, but it is a good reading of media. Yeah, I more I more or less agree. Yeah. I don't think that's what they were trying to do, but I like it as a lens through which to view it. Because I will say like they cast the children quite well except for the whole snafu where they make lavender white as soon as she's a romantic interest um <gasps> that happened that happened recast a black girl as a for a blonde blue-eyed white girl as soon as ron got interested in her check it out look at lavender brown in the fifth movie and then look at lavender brown in the sixth movie but apart from that you know <clears throat> little thing they cast the children quite well um they cast them believably i always have this funny experience when we when i rewatch the movies because i remember watching the first movie and having the biggest crush on oliver wood and just thinking he was like the hottest and then coming back to it now and going like oh look at that little baby faced 14 year old (laughs) um Uh and that's good casting like you know that's that's casting correctly draco Mm -hmm. malfoy is also excellently cast Oh, um, yes. He did a wonderful job, Tom Felton. Uh, also hot now, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, fun fact, everybody, just as long as I'm on this casting thing, because this we'll talk about more, but you know the whole Neville glow up thing that people talk about? Mm-hmm. Well, like, sure, he w- became a hot teenager, but they also had him in a fat suit and fake teeth. Really? Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm mad now. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh... Don't, my foghorn noise. don't use fat suits. I'm putting this out there. If you want a fat actor, hire a fat actor. Okay? Thank you. It's, yeah, it's really bad. Don't do it. It's gross. Let's talk about Voldemort. I can't, if I start talking about fat phobia this week of all weeks, we're not going to have a show about Harry Potter. Fair. So Voldemort. <laughs> so Voldemort. 
Um, this is the first time we get a sense of Voldemort as a person. This is the first time we get confirmation that Voldemort began as a human. And uh, it's, it's really interesting to me that the fear of Voldemort's name is so profound in the wizarding community that Ginny, who is from a very old wizarding family, does not recognize the name Tom Riddle. That's mm. how powerful Voldemort's little stage name is. And that's how yeah. powerful fear is. People don't know him. And that's really the arc of Voldemort is kind of uncovering who he is because the more they uncover who Voldemort is under all the pageantry, the more vulnerable he becomes. Yeah, it raises this question of why Wizarding Society was so collectively like uninterested in Voldemort before, like in knowing anything about Voldemort before he became Voldemort. Like, I think that's really interesting. Like, you get the idea that, like, one of the only people who even really knew this was Dumbledore, like, still remembered it. Although, clearly, as we learn later in the series, like, other people do know, like, people who knew him at that time. But, yeah, it's really interesting to think, like, do none of the history books say, like, have Voldemort's origin story in them? I mean, and Voldemort has, like, a very powerful uh, death-driven PR campaign. Mm-hmm. Where, like, if you're saying things Voldemort doesn't like, Voldemort kills you. So that's fairly powerful. Um, because, you know, you have to ask if somebody did write about Voldemort's origin story in a history book. And Voldemort's origin story is not that old, even as history goes. It's 50 years ago. Uh, would that book be able to get published or would everybody close to it die? Well, but what about what about books that were written um, between between eighty one and what is it ninety four? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, like we know that there were books that were written then because Hermione knew all about Harry from having done background reading right. before she gets to Hogwarts. So we know that there were lots of books that were written about Voldemort in that time. Why Why did none of them include or explore, like, who Voldemort was beforehand? And I wonder if part of that is this sort of, like, collective, like, inability almost that Wizarding Society has to seeing Voldemort... Voldemort? Voldemort! <laughs> as, as an actual human person. Um... Like, we even get this in the first book with Hagrid saying something about he didn't have enough, I don't think he had enough human left in him to die. And I wonder if part of the aura of Voldemort's power is this idea that he's not really actually a real person. Um, and that's part of, and maybe that's part of what is unique about how Dumbledore and then Harry see Voldemort is that they really explore him as a human being. Absolutely. I think Voldemort kind of effectively distanced um, his evil wizard persona from his human persona. Uh, I think when when Voldemort began murdering people on a large scale, he did so much quietly first that for some people, I'm not sure the links would necessarily even be there um, Mm -hmm. that he was Tom Riddle because he also staged Tom Riddle's death. He staged Tom Riddle Sr.'s death. Yeah. I don't think he staged his own death. I think he staged his own death as part of that. Maybe not. No. I need to fact check that. Yeah. I don't think so. Okay. Okay. But I do think, I mean, he was, Tom Riddle was not a notable person, which is, you know, he was really angry about and resented. I do think that if true crime podcasts had existed in the 80s, somebody would have done that work. Like, if, if if the true crime craze existed at that time, Voldemort, like, everybody would have figured it out. Like, like somebody would have, like, figured out the Horcruxes ahead of time, just being, like, on a Reddit, like, conspiracy theories board. Mm-hmm. Being like, hmm. And then they would know Harry was a Horcrux from, like, the get-go. Like, you know, Dumbledore did, mm-hmm. but we're getting ahead of ourselves. But speaking of that, we get, we are not by that name, but we are introduced to Horcruxes in this book. And we are also, we are reading, reading with the hindsight of having read the other books. 
Dumbledore totally already knows at this point that Harry is a Horcrux. Yeah. And just, just luckily, it just happens that Harry had a basilisk fang handy to destroy a Horcrux with. Uh, and I do love how that gets called back mm-hmm. at the very end of the series. It's wonderful. I love how it gets called back. Ginny, I think, is another kind of unsung hero. I think Ginny gets a bed rap because Bonnie Wright didn't maybe do the best performance um, in the Harry Potter movies, which is partly because she was cast before the series was finished and they had no idea how big of a character she would be. And they kind of cast her as a secondary character. Yeah, she was she was also like, I don't I haven't watched the later movies with like a strong eye towards her. So I don't know how much. It was her, but she was also, like, her part was written very small until they realized that she needed to have a bigger role. Exactly. Exactly. Um, But Ginny in the books is a totally different character. I want to give a shout out to uh, an actual um, fan artist who does um, their Instagram account. So I don't know how to pronounce this because it's not really pronounceable. It's spelled... Uh, B-L-V-N-K and on Instagram they do the most beautiful fan art of Harry and uh, Ginny's relationship as adults. It's actually at Potter by B-L-V-N-K. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it's Blunk because that's how I always say it in my head. But yeah, I really want to give them a shout out because they do this this really, really gorgeous fan art of their life together as adults of Harry dealing with the trauma afterwards um, and really let Ginny shine as who she is as a professional athlete when she's an adult. And uh, it's just really cool. So that's that's mm-hmm. Instagram.com slash Potter by Blunk. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes for people. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really captivated by Harry and Ginny's relationship because it has such a slow burn. Um, mm-hmm. And... You know, we get Ginny having a crush on him from the beginning. As a younger sibling, it was really, like, comforting for me to see the younger sibling crushing on their older sibling's friend play out in a nice and healthy way. Because uh, mm, it's definitely yeah. a scenario I have been in, like, multiple times as a teenager. I just found my high school journals yesterday, and uh, who boy, <laughs> was it ever a situation I was in a lot. Um, and, you know, it's it's neat the ways that Ginny kind of calls back to this experience later, like when Harry's worried that he's been possessed by Voldemort and she's like well I am the only person you know who's been possessed by Voldemort so and he's kind of like I forgot about that because at that point I thought of you as kind of a prop in my you know big hero act (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. but we do see Ginny just so lonely trying to navigate her first year of school feeling really left out by her older siblings and really confused by that because like she's been homeschooled until now as all wizarding children are and is really used to like hanging out with her siblings and having fun with them and now they're off doing things with famous people and she essentially finds a stranger on the internet to chat with right yeah (laughs) and it's really interesting I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking back to our conversation last week now as well uh, how we talked about sort of Harry and Ron and Hermione all sort of saw themselves as or were seen as a little bit kind of outcasts and they build a good space for themselves at Hogwarts by being friends with each other um, and Ginny is sort of like the picture of what would have of what one of them might have been like in their first year if they hadn't sort of made those two really fast friendships and instead sort of withdrew inwards and yeah, talked to a stranger on the internet um, for solace. And I also love, like now I'm, I'm just thinking about like, Ginny becomes one of the most popular kids at Hogwarts after this mm-hmm. because she is genuinely nice and smart and athletic. And also because like, like I kind of love how she just goes off and has her own life. It mm-hmm. would be really depressing, I think, if she just pined after Harry forever and then they got together. Um, and again, like getting ahead of myself into other books. But I do love how she like 
in the third book is already off with her friends and the fourth book is off with her friends like she's not hanging around with them becoming part of their clique now i just want like extensive fanfic from Ginny's perspective during like second and third year and her process of sort of like processing what happened in her first year and like deciding to like put her and like go like dealing with all that trauma but like dealing with it in a way that like makes her more confident and more able to put herself out there and oh I just like want more of Ginny's rich internal life Ginny is so cool and I've said before that I was never a big fanfic reader but I actually read loads of Harry Potter fanfic as a teenager um, mm. and the stuff I liked best was all like Hermione and Ginny uh, fic so mm-hmm. like largely friend fic also sometimes some other stuff but like of like Ginny and Hermione just chatting on the side because we also see this develops again in the later books more and more as Hermione spends more time at the burrow Ginny and Hermione become really good friends um mm-hmm. and it's always really nice to see that perspective of just like no there are there are other things going on life goes on outside of Harry Potter's aura mm-hmm. yeah yeah it is really and I think yeah, we start to see that in this book. But yeah, there's way more going on that Harry doesn't see. And Jenny is a great example of that. And I just love Jenny. One thing in this book, which just just fills me with glee, but also just like every time I read it, I'm just like, oh, come on. Is that the flying car in the Whomping Willow. Harry and Ron, due to house elf magic, I can't believe we didn't even talk about house elves. Mm-hmm. We'll have a better chance to talk about them later. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry and Ron get shut out from the barrier at King's Cross Station. And in about, you know, three minutes without even like waiting for, for the Weasleys to talk to them or anything are like, shit, we're locked out. You know what we have to do? We have to fly a car. We have to steal your father's car, break some magical laws and fly to Hogwarts because uh, that is more important. You know, they're going to care more about us being late to school then they will care about us illegally flying a car and um a i mean they're 12 year olds so you know yeah not the best not the best judgment but i was also reading this and and i was thinking about astrology because i was reading this and i was like this is the most like on harry's part this is the most sagittarian move Ever. This is so Sagittarius. My child is a Sagittarius. Um, and and I was like, but Harry's not a Sagittarius. And then I was like, but in book three, Professor Trelawney refers to him as being born in midwinter because he's been touched by Voldemort, which we find out later. So I was like, so does he have some Sagittarius in his chart maybe? So I looked up his chart and I was very, very happy to see that he is in fact Sagittarius rising and Aries moon which means he is all fire in his triad which makes this stupid stupid decision to not tell any of the grown-ups where you are and instead illegally fly a car that is an experiment across the country following a train and breaking wizarding law Instead of, you know, waiting and saying, hey, mom, dad, what should I do? Or as McGonagall sensibly points out, sending an owl, which Harry literally had with him. So we see this very hot-headed fireside move on Harry's part. And Ron is a Pisces. Uh, and I am also a Pisces. And I've got to say, it also makes a lot of sense to me from a Pisces perspective. A, I have made so many stupid split-second decisions because I panicked instead of, you know, thinking through the situation at all. Um, I have a tattoo of a wasp on my arm that I got because I was mad. Uh, <laughs> so it makes a lot of sense to me that Harry's like, shit, what are we going to do? And Ron's just like, the car. And they're like, the car, the car. Let's fly the car. I can fly. The- do you know how to fly the car? Totally. Let's go. Um, 
and it's and it's so stupid and it almost gets them killed and they lose this car they lose ron's family's vehicle and ron breaks his wand which his parents cannot afford to replace until book five i think like ron just has a broken wand no it's next book it isn't the next book i thought it was the uh the cup winnings no it's remember they they uh oh when they go to egypt they win a lottery yeah 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 um, but anyway, I just like, there's just these pleasant reminders sometimes of like, these are children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes children make bad choices. Also, fire, sun, moon, and rising is a whole lot. <laughs> um, and I like to think about astrology in terms of characters. This has been the Astrology Corner with Taffer. This is wonderful. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Also, this this little tangent um, reminded me that I think, honestly, one of the reasons that I have reread this book less than some of the others is because that whole thing with the um, with the flying the car and the Whomping Willow and all of that just makes my, like, so I am the Libraist, um, and I am, like, super, have the tendency to be very, like, rule-following and very think things through kind of person that whole thing with the whole whomping willow car just like gives me such secondhand cringe that i just like can't huh that's fun incidentally harry is mars as in libra oh Ah. interesting um yeah i'm not libra enough for that to give me secondhand cringe I mean, I'm rule following. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't do that. I would probably just sit down on the platform and cry, which I did once, actually, in the Paris airport under similar circumstances. No house elves and no flying cars involved. Um, But, uh, yeah, that one didn't give me secondhand cringe. I cannot watch Bridget Jones's diary, though. Mm. I have to fast forward the scene with Salman Rushdie and not just because he's a dick in real life. I'm trying to think. I've read Bridget Jones' Diary, but I can't think if I've seen it. Um, but yeah, no, this this bit just gives me so much secondhand cringe that I just, like, can't. I'm like, why are you doing this? This is so ill-advised. Uh, you know what's funny, though, is that as a teenager reading it, I was like, this makes perfect sense. Ah. And now, I think about Mrs. Weasley. I think about Mrs. Weasley sending that howler. <laughs> I think about... Molly Weasley is on the platform seeing her children off. She's seeing her her youngest child leave the nest and go to Hogwarts. She's totally focused on Ginny. Then she's trying to find Harry and Ron to say goodbye and she can't find them. And she's like, oh, well, you know, it sucks that they didn't say goodbye to me, but I guess they found their friends and ran on while I was focused on Ginny or whatever. But she's a little bit anxious. And then they leave and the car's gone. And it's like, what happened? Did the ministry impound this? Is like Arthur going to lose his job? Are we going to be even more poor? Is Arthur going to go to jail? I have been telling him not to bring this car out. Did it just get taken by the muggle police? What are we going to do? So somehow they get home. I guess they apparate because they're adults. Mm-hmm. They get home. And then get a message from Hogwarts that Harry and Ron weren't on the train. And then they get the following. So then they're like, shit, what happened to these children, right? Like, for a family Mm -hmm. who's lived through Voldemort's rise, I'm sure people disappearing does not feel great. And we know that Molly's greatest fear is losing her family. So then she's like panicking Mm -hmm. about what's going on with her children and what's going on with the car and are they related and then she finds out that they are related and then she finds out that they got in a car crash with a tree that hits back and then somehow they're unscathed like that's just that's just too many feelings for one day (laughs) yeah that's a lot poor molly that's so much also okay you know this is a very small thing But you know the other thing that always just, like, horrifies me, Mm. um, being the person that I am by that whole sequence of events, is that they went on, like, a several hours long car ride without bringing water with them. Oh, I know. But they're 12. They're 12. I mean, I don't think I would have done that at 12. But I also, like, religiously carry a water bottle with me wherever I go. So... Yeah, no, I I would have done that at twelve. I'm I'm a little odd. No, you're responsible. Care- you're very Libra, Bailey. 
I care about hydration so much, Teffer. I did have a water bottle with me at all times in high school. But mm-hmm. but I also think I would have absolutely spontaneously gone on a road trip with my friends and forgotten my water bottle. Mm. Because I am baby and I expect other people to bring the water. No, I'm like too I'm too like anxious about not having water and snacks to ever not bring them with me. <laughs> Anyways, I'm uh, I'm excited uh, to continue journeying through this series. I can't believe we didn't talk about basilisks. I I oh like goodness. we barely talked about Voldemort. I there's so much we didn't touch on, but hey, uh, if you want more in depth, check out Witch Please, which we just keep plugging, but really, really, really mm-hmm. do. I'm gonna also tag them in this so they know that we're raving about them every week. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also recommend The Gaily Prophet, which is a queer Harry Potter read-through podcast. Yeah. Um, they have some really, really fun Hagrid headcanons that I am obsessed with. Oh my god, I can't wait to talk more about Hagrid. I love Hagrid so much. Thanks for listening to Yeah! If you want to leave feedback, suggest a book for us to read, or just say hi, send us an email at theyapodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at yapodcast and individually at tefferbear and at thebalesosaurus. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, consider supporting us on Patreon. You can get all kinds of great perks, including early access to bonus content, shoutouts, guest appearances, and more. During this Harry Potter series, there is a special patron perk. Uh, so... You should definitely, definitely sign up to be a patron during this because uh, we'll talk to you about it. It's exciting. Head to patreon.com slash yapodcast to donate. Shout out to our patrons, Catherine Resch, Erica Stutchberry, Kat McGuire, Lizzie Tenhove, Chantal Thomas, and Matt Dabber. We love you. We have merch. Hit the merch link in the description of this episode to get some from the fine folks over at Public. You can also support us for free by leaving a rating and review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, by subscribing to us on Spotify, please do that, and by sharing this episode with a friend, maybe a friend who thinks that The Chamber of Secrets is the worst Harry Potter book. Special thanks to Great Bear for letting us use their song Jenny's Groove as our theme music. You can find their music for sale at greatbearmusic.bandcamp.com. This episode was produced by me, Tevra Jenian, and edited by Tom Zalatni as part of the Upford Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at upfordnetwork.com. I'm Tom Zalatni, host and producer of Up for Discussion, the emotionally honest comedy podcast. What does that mean? It means we're not afraid to get vulnerable, explore the human side of comedy, and be super duper open about the ways that we're struggling to become better people along the way. Still have no idea what I'm talking about? Fair enough. Come give us a listen. The Up for Discussion podcast, available on the Upford Network and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you're someone who interacts with kids, you're probably familiar with moments of being asked questions you're just not equipped to answer. Whether it's the old favorite, where do babies come from, or the nuances of discrimination, Rad Child Podcast has your back. Each episode, your host, Seth Day, leads a discussion about topics like race, disability, loss, gender, sexuality, and so much more. Our goal is to give grown-ups the tools to talk to kids about almost anything. So come give a listen. Rad Child Podcast helping to raise a generation of open, compassionate, rad kids. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and just about anywhere else.